This episode of Hustle is brought to you by Design Inc., best place to find creative talent. Need help with the project? Post it on Design Inc. and receive free proposals from the best designers, illustrators, and animators. Join the hundreds of companies and startups that have been connected with the perfect creative for their project. Go to designinc.com slash hustle and start your project today. Welcome back to the Hustle Podcast. Today I'm here with Chris Messina. Chris is currently unemployed. Uh, recently left Uber. He was the developer experience lead. Um, for those of you that don't know Chris, he is the founder of Barcamp, and he was also the person responsible for creating the hashtag, which I, I think is pretty pretty damn cool. Um, what's uh, what's going on with you, Chris? Why don't you say hello and a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um... Yeah, man, I'm just chilling. Um, I, uh, I appreciate you having me on the show. Um, I think the timing was, you know, fairly awesome uh, since we're kicking off 2017. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually very excited about kind of all sorts of stuff that's going on um, in the tech space, design space, um, and so on. You know, but I've, I've been in the tech world for over a decade now. You know, I first came out to the Bay Area in like 2004, and the first project that I worked on was the launch of Firefox, basically. Um, yeah. You know, so I've sort of been in the open source world, uh, was one of the first designers on the Drupal project, um, contributed some stuff to WordPress like way back in the day. Um, and yeah, anyways, I've had kind of like a, I don't know, it's, a, it's been an interesting ride, both on the outside side, like I've had my own agency, um, to being inside of bigger companies, um, including Google, and of course, recently, as you said, uh, Uber. So here I am on the outside again, thinking about what's next. And, um, you know, I'm excited to sort of like chat with you guys about, um, what you guys are seeing out there too. Yeah. Remind me, what was the name of the agency that you owned? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I sort of was doing almost like a, an annual thing for a while where I started out in 2004 working on Firefox and then Barcamp was 2005. Then, uh, 2006 was citizen agency, which was the agency. And then we had the first, uh, co-working spaces in San Francisco, um, which was citizen space. And we kind of popularized that thing, which, you know, now is kind of everywhere. Um, and then in, in uh, 2007, it was the hashtag. And then, I don't know, 2008 and beyond is kind of a blur, but uh, those were the social war, social web wars, um, I guess, back then. Well, it's, it's really good to talk to you. It, was, it wasn't planned, but this season so far, I've been really lucky to talk to a lot of old schoolers, you, know, you <laughs> and you and uh, Greg Story and Mike Buzzard and, and, yeah. and, and, and several other people. And so I've had a, a, been having a really good time going down memory lane. Um, yeah, actually, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, uh, so I, I worked with Mike Buzzard um, uh, from Cuban Council at, uh, Google, actually, we overlap there. Um, I think he and I are getting lunch next week. But uh, his, actually, the Cuban Council offices were literally like right down the street from Citizen Space. And we worked side by side with each other for like years and had no idea. So it's kind <laughs> of uh, great to have that, that little, uh, you know, tidbit. So I, I actually like came out here being a super fan of Cuban Council and like all the stuff they were doing back then, all their pixel designs. Like we think this stuff is like hot and fresh, but like they... Yeah pioneered it back then with like shockwave apps and stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyways, Dino won't remember this, but there was a fad where everyone was designing with little, you know, six to nine point pixel fonts and yeah. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I mean, we got to go back and check it out. That was, um, I don't know if you know Greg's story, but um, I, I'm just, I, I, I try to mention this to a lot. He's been um, thinking about maybe 
starting a museum or something of, or of some way to experience, um, Oh my God, that has to happen. Yeah. Old web sure. design. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny too. Um, I've been, um, I've been listening to, uh, which I guess is another way of saying reading, um, ready player one. And that goes way back to, you know, the nineties. Uh, and so of course there needs to be sort of like, I don't know if it's going to be ready player two, but like, you know, the second iteration of that, um, and all the stuff that we were doing back in like the, uh, the early two thousands. So real quick, what were you, what were you, you know, 1997, 90 to 99, what were you doing in that time frame? I was in high school. In high school. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I graduated I finished, in 99. I finished school around the same time. I, um, I was getting, trying to figure out what to do with this artistic talent and I had, plus I was really good at drafting and someone talked, someone told me about multimedia um, then I got sucked into web design. Oh, what, how did you how did you get into the, into this field? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's funny because it was right around that time. Like I, um, in in high school, and actually going all the way back, I I, um, I was always kind of like a like an artist. Actually, I did a lot more like comic book drawing. I did like pastels and you know watercolors and all that stuff. Um, but I was also into computers too. You know, the number of times I broke my my dad's computer was greater than probably a hundred. Um, but you know, I, I was super interested in like what was going on there. I was into the web. Um, in fact, uh, your listeners will have to imagine what this looks like, but, um, my, my dad cleaned out his house, uh, last year and they sent me a bunch of old stuff. These are, uh, floppy disks of my old work, <laughs> literally 1.44, um, you know, the hard disk gets three and a half inch fl- floppy disks. And I've got probably about 30 of them that have some of my old designs from like high school, which is just mind boggling anyways. And so I had to buy this. This is going to be awesome too. your uh, listeners can't see this either, but this is actually a floppy disk that you can plug into your Mac. Um, so it's sort of like way back memory lane. So anyways, how I got into this stuff was I, I decided that I wanted to merge my artistic interests with my, my computer interests and um, right around the time discovered the web and started you know, creating my own AOL homepage and stuff like that and realized that this would be a great way of bringing everyone together um, in my high school by creating pages for all the clubs. And so um, I started doing that. I started like scanning artwork, you know, with like Photoshop 2 or whatever. It was super slow and always crashing, but um, built out those pages. And then through that, ended up working for the first web design company in New Hampshire, which is where I grew up. And, um, you know, kind of rode the wave of like, you know, ASP.net and all this stuff back then um, and sort of realized the power that Microsoft had over the internet back then. And so when I had the opportunity after graduating, this is several years later, um, ended up going out to California, coming to San Francisco, discovering the Mozilla project in open source and realizing, hey, this is like something that's very, very important for the future of, you know, civilization, basically like media needs to be open and free and writable by everybody. And we need a platform that's uh, not controlled by a single dominant company. Uh, and so I went about one about work, working on um, the launch of that browser. Huh. From the, uh, sorry, go ahead, Dina. Oh, no, just what you're saying about open source. Um, that's, that's interesting. Cause from some of your older interviews, it seemed like um, it was just more like a, there's a certain intensity to that whole open source like debate back then and then kind of what it evolved into now is like a couple of years later it's it's a term that we use often when we talk about transparency in business and when we talk about digital culture in general and like do you think that's just like the natural maturity for that subject to reach that point or like i don't know the way it grew yeah actually i mean it's, it's a really good point um and i think this is one of the fun things sort of about talking about folks who either are 
new to that history or or as well as folks who have also been in that space um at the time you know open source was kind of a dirty word actually um people had come out to silicon valley to like you know make their their gold and their riches as often people do in silicon valley um and what had happened after the first dot-com bust you know a lot of the people who are here just to make money um left you know they were like well this is stupid like no one's going to use the internet after all like you know pets.com sort of died or whatever and so um but there was a bunch of people who were really involved in the technology really believed in the technology believed in the enabling power of the technology a lot of folks um who are you know libertarians are kind of you know wanting to um bring freedom to the internet and so it was i mean there was almost like a religious kind of um, yeah it was, it was almost like a, like a manifesto you know like it was yeah like counterculture. No, I mean, and, and working on the mozilla project was i mean you wore it like a, like a badge of honor and it's funny actually just i think it was yesterday mozilla came out with their new brand and um i i don't i don't have i mean it's it's not as bad as like the gap rebranding um that happened a couple of years ago but um <laughs> it it's it's so retro that it kind of actually is like looking backwards as opposed to forwards. And I think that it's, it's kind of unfortunate because this is such an interesting moment for, you know, for the web as an open platform and for generativity and for um, social media and for um, like video and rich media on the web um, that are mostly being controlled by and built up by uh, what are effectively advertising companies. And so it raises a question as to what is the future of media and who is going to be the shepherd of that going forward? And what what expectations should young people have about the control and transparency or inspectability of that media that they encounter? So, for example, like, you know, the other question you asked was, like, how I got into this stuff. Well, a lot of the way that we used to learn about building for the web was by viewing source. Of course, a lot of apps now are way more complex, and so it's a little bit harder to just you know look at the source code and figure out how it works because there's so much behavior, so much coding. Um, but if you imagine you know doing or having the same level of access and transparency into a lot of the way that media is produced, whether it's video, audio, or, or so on, that could actually you know enable a younger generation that's growing up with this stuff to have the same curiosity and to be able to satisfy their curiosity very quickly by being able to inspect other people's work, learn from it, adapt it, modify it, and share it. Um, the whole sort of remix culture concept. Um, and I feel like maybe, maybe to your point, a lot of these ideas now have become so commonplace and it's sort of normal, in other words, to share your work in various ways, um, that it doesn't need to be, there doesn't need to be such a strong banner attached to it anymore. But um, having come from a world where that wasn't the default and that holding on to everything. And I mean, I get this question a lot about the hashtag when people are like, so why didn't you patent the hashtag? And I'm like, well, because that's a stupid idea. Like then it would never have taken off and I would have had to control it and like sell licenses. And um, I would have had to get in the way of what I think is a fundamental behavioral technology for the social web. Um, But of course, that comes out of a mindset of wanting to sort of be able to harness the value of the things that we create and to make money off of those things all the time. And that's not always the best. Well, and not only, not only do you take that stance, but apparently Twitter did too. I mean, the, the use of the hashtag is used by everyone. Well, yeah. they um, tried, they, they did. tried to like trademark it and they tried to, and I, I was not uh, very happy poo-poo, about that. Poo-poo. So, you know, there was a moment there and I think, you know, it's one of those things where I think they quickly realized that that probably just didn't make a lot of sense, but you know, I mean, Twitter has tried to figure out a way of, of owning something of value, of uniqueness. They wanted like the hashtag to be synonymous with, with Twitter. And it, it is to some degree, but the value of it is actually 
allowing everyone to contribute to conversations no matter what platforms they're on and what they're using. Oh. So let's talk about that for a minute. Did you, did you did you ever imagine that, you know, you would come into this industry and create something that would be so wildly used around the entire world and it would be, be blasted on television screens and radio ads and like, um, what does it feel like to have um, come up with a, a concept like that? I mean, I mean, I can't even imagine what it, I, so that's my, the biggest question I have for you is like, what does it feel like to have, well, you know, created the hashtag? Yeah. It's always like Christmasina and then turn the it's, hashtag. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I mean, cause like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't feel like it, it, it changed me that much or like it sort of, I mean, it did in that it's, it's very humbling, you know, to see something that you've kind of, I mean, first of all, that, that there was a lot of skepticism about in the beginning and to sort of feel you know, some resonance with this, this idea that you've come up with and to go through all of the, the, the stages of kind of disbelief about it or sort of like, well, this will never work. Or like, you know, when I brought it to Twitter and I, I, I like, you know, the day after I proposed it, I went to their offices when it was like small and there was no security. And, um, you know, they, they just sort of said, this is stupid and it'll never work because, you know, this is an idea for nerds. And I was like, well, you guys are probably right. Isn't but that I, what their whole idea was in the first place? <laughs> well, I, you know, they had illusions of grandeur or whatever. I mean, you know, it was it was um, it was hard to disagree, given that they'd come from Google, they'd sold a, a startup, like they'd seen the inside mm-hmm. of one of these machines, and they saw how real users behave, and they're like, you know, we can barely get people to like sign into their, you know, their their phone you know, to like remember their password, like how are they going to get this weird esoteric symbol, um, you know, and so on. But, but it's one of those things where simplicity actually is really, really hard to achieve. And so, you, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of web communities and, 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 and also mobile communities more recently come out where you have to like go to a forum and like join it and follow it and post to it and subscribe. And it's a lot of work. You know, and that was kind of what I was anticipating that that was not going to make that was not going to jump the chasm between the desktop world where you have like a mouse and a keyboard to the mobile world where you have partial uh, attention and you've got a, a fairly restricted keyboard. Um, so I was sort of anticipating that shift um, and 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 designing for that moment. You know, whereas yeah. I think a lot of people who were on Twitter in the early days were using Twitter through the web. Um, and just didn't really see how an idea coming out of IRC would actually be relevant to everybody, um, you know. And it, I mean, so literally, it's ten years uh, ago when that idea first came out. So it's taken a long time for it to really saturate um, the world. I um, in some in some cases, it feels like ten years ago was just yesterday, but I but I also sometimes it feels like a million years ago. I, I remember. Uh, when I was working at Behavior and uh, my boss, uh, one of the partners, Chris Fahey, I don't know if you know him, um, but he's like, yeah, I check out this Twitter thing. And I'm like, why would I ever want to use that? <laughs> like, I don't want that. He just got back from South by Southwest and he was really jazzed about it. And uh, I was, you know, at the time, I still had like a Reca Razor phone or, yeah. uh, and I, yeah. I only use it for phone calls. I mean, I, I didn't really get it. But, you know, I, uh, I do remember for a short period of time using Twitter um, on my razor phone. Um, and I, and I guess it is kind of hard to really, uh, bring the value of, you know, talking, what are you doing now when you were waiting to get to your desktop and. Right. Well, but I mean, remember too, like, like at the time 
the kind of uh, now we have LTE like networking, you know, didn't exist. Like trying to do anything on the mobile web was atrocious. I mean, the browsers were all black and white. They gave you like this, you know, stripped down text only version. Um, it was just not really a functional world to live in. And so like the publishing via SMS, you know, was actually kind of both a novel idea and also one that sort of made sense because you're out on the go and you just have a, a thought and you want to share it with your friends. It was a super fast delivery mechanism. And everyone, of course, received these via SMS as well. And so it felt very communal uh, back then. It created a lot of social cohesion. So, Yeah. So um, do you, we, can, we can move on, but I'm, I'm just curious if you could just summarize what led you to arrive at that proposition. I mean, I know, I know a bit of the story, but I don't know if you, like, were you working at Twitter? Where, was it just an idea? Like, um, sum, summarize how this came about. Yeah, I mean, the idea for the hashtag, like, you know, I never worked at Twitter. Um, it's sort of one of those funny things where you're like, oh, like back when you were working there and everyone asked me that, but I, I never worked there. Um, I was just an early user. And uh, the, the, the core idea was, was, again, you know, sort of in response to those web forums that I was talking about. Um, we needed a way of grouping or labeling these conversations. We needed a way for people to contribute to a conversation that was ongoing, as opposed to a conversation just sort of like floating all over the place. And furthermore, in my original proposal, you can actually like find the blog post. Um, the idea was to kind of take the ability to, to pop in and out of a channel like an IRC and apply that to, to Twitter. So if you want to have a conversation, great. Like, you know, you can sort of like tap on a hashtag and then talk about that thing and then pop out and you're done. Very fast, very low friction, um, and ideally could be done over a mobile phone. And so... Um, More like a group. Well, it's, it is a group. It's oh, sort of an ad hoc yeah. disposable group. That was the idea. Um, and we needed something that was very easy to do that could be done using your Razor phone, for example, and that was very easy for people to learn just by emulating other people. And so that's kind of like where it came from. It was like, let's take this thing from IRC. Um, let's let's just plug it into to the tweet itself so you can't actually like remove it. Um, and you can put as many tags as you want you know, in your post up to obviously 140 characters. And um, the thing that really, I think, cemented this, right? I mean, that was like the germ of the idea and I wrote it up or whatever, was um, that Instagram needed a way for their photos to be discovered, right? This is before machine vision, right? So you don't have, mm -hmm. or you didn't have um, like deep learning and AI and neural nets and all this stuff that we, you know, are all buzzwordy today. Um, you know, so you needed people to label all these photos in order to train the system. This is what Flickr was doing. Flickr was asking people to like add tags to their photos. So in a similar way, it was like, well, let's take that idea of tagging photos and just apply it to tweets. Or in the case of Instagram, continue that behavior of tagging photos, but just use hashtags. Uh, because essentially you have like a photo and you have a caption and the caption is where the tags can go. And so as a result of that, I think people found a lot of value because they wanted their photos to be seen. They wanted to tag it with, you know, hashtag sunset or hashtag twerk or, you know, whatever. Um, and that's, yeah. So I think that once it's, once it crossed that chasm, then I think it was kind of impossible to, to take it back. <laughs> that's such an awesome story. So Dina's got another question for you. <laughs> Great. I actually just wanted to know, have you seen, um, do you watch Black Mirror? Yes. Have you seen that episode where yes. um, maybe, oh yes, okay. <laughs> maybe spoilers, but um, they're using AI, like a chat bot where basically the girl loses her fiance and they use like AI to recreate a neural network for him. And it starts off with him just texting her from the grave basically. And then like he calls her and then they end up making a way to make a robot that looks just like him. And then it um like just, it goes to her house and stuff. It, it like a uh, 
skimmed his voicemail and all that sort of stuff too, right? Yeah, it was like his whole social media, his um, like everything he ever posted, his text messages, like people volunteered that. But then I was reading an article lately that there's a company in Russia that found a way to do something similar, like the girl's best friend died. And I don't know if you've read that article, but basically like it was it was pretty much the same thing. They skinned like anyone who wanted to participate and like give the text messages, his social media. And now like the bot exists on like the Luca app and you can like text it and it'll answer questions about him or it'll even say things in his own language. Like they built this whole complex neural network. And I was just wondering, since you worked in bots, like what you thought about that? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's great, a great question. Um, I think Luca now has pivoted into something called Replica, uh, which is mm-hmm. basically that idea. And so there is this question that's looming, I think, for, for those of us who are in the bot space, in the bot community. Um, you know, one, what, what, what is a good bot? Two, uh, what should a bot represent? Is it a service? Is it sort of like a branded identity? Um, is it kind of a way of extending like a TV show, for example, or like a video game? Um, or is there an opportunity for there to be more personal bots uh, that are essentially a second skin or an extension of yourself? And then there's two aspects of that, which is what is the inbound interaction that people have with your personal bot? In other words, what can they do with your personal bot? How deep can those questions go? And is it possible for your bot to have some sense about the audience or the person that's engaging with your bot to be able to provide personalized answers or responses, right? Like, you know, if I'm talking to my partner, like I'm going to tell her uh, a lot more stuff than if I'm talking to a stranger, will my bot have the same sort of sense of a person that's, that it's interacting with? And then on the flip side of that, it's sort of like, you know, what is the process of sharing consciousness with the bot? In other words, if I am talking to my personal bot to sort of, you know, be the Wizard of Oz, um, what does that interaction look like? And what is my bot doing on, on my behalf? You know, one of the one of the questions, um, or at least, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about bots in general. And of course, I think although 2016 was the year that kind of put bot platforms on the map um, and is what I called the year of conversational commerce, you know, 2017 and going forward, we're kind of in this point where it's like, well, bots are over. We tried it. it. Didn't work. They suck. And it's like, okay, well, good. You guys all go away. You know, we've done this before. 2004, no one was in Silicon Valley. Everyone thought the internet was dead. Um, let's have the serious people who actually like want to dig in and do something good now show up and start to like create really, really transcendent experiences. Um, and so when it comes to the the, the personal bot opportunity, um, you know, anybody who is who has an email account, let's say, and who's ever used an autoresponder already basically has a bot. They just don't think of Gmail as kind of a bot. But it is really sort of a front end um, that's a very slow way of actually having, in, you know, inbound messages come in, Google scans them, looks for spam, so gets rid of a bunch of nonsense and, and noise, and then leaves the signal for you to process. And increasingly over time, you see Google doing more and more things in that inbox, whether it's bubbling up shipping notifications or airline links or receipts or organizing them into different channels, right? In some ways, you can imagine that as a, as a precursor or predecessor to what might eventually be kind of like this, this personal assistant that you're looking at. And then on the flip side of that, there's a set of facts or information that you want to make available to the outside world. The question though is, you know, who is interacting with that bot? What kind of information are they interested in? Um, is there a way for them to validate their own identity? So though, again, they can get personalized information. Um, and then what sort of, or where does it go from there? Now I have a personal bot. It's called Messina bot. And uh, it was built 
sort of as the second gen after uh, my partner Esther built her bot called EsterBot. And Esther's bot was kind of designed as a way of having an interactive resume. So she built it on Twilio and you could sort of ask it questions and it would, you know, answer questions. It was super then for dope. my bot, we kind of decided to take that to the next level and built it on Messenger. And it kind of, what I like about it is that it captures a bunch of stuff that I publish across the web, whether it's on Product Hunt or Medium or my podcast, like this podcast will be in my bot eventually, um, whether it's like events that I'm gonna be speaking at or um, even for a while you could like schedule office hours with me. So it had that kind of like personal assistant wow. aspect. Um, you can get my drink recipes cause I tend to drink a lot of cocktails. Um, and if you connect, this is part of the thing that I did well as an Uber. If you connect your Uber account to my bot, whenever you're driving someplace in an Uber, um, Uber will send my bot your destination and it'll look up my tips on Foursquare and then my bot will then relay those tips to you so you know exactly what to do while you're on the way. So you can imagine a whole army of bots in the world that are your friends or extensions of your friends and are actually tapping into all the vast knowledge that your friends have in a way that's very opportunistic and very contextual and very in the moment. And we aren't that far away from that, really. When you think about all the digital stuff that we're producing, the question is, how do you actually bring that all together in a form that gives each of us a little more control and power over that experience um, and then can make the best and most interesting and useful stuff available to the right people in the right times and moments? So is that where your focus is right now? Um, <laughs> is is in, the, in the world of conversational design and, and bots? I, I, I would say that, yes, my focus right now is really in the realm of conversational products. And to me, that spans uh, messaging and voice, um, as well as like other contexts that, you know, you might think of as being more like marketing channels. But I like the privacy that messaging channels afford because it allows people to open up more and to share more of themselves, um, you know, in a way that you just probably won't see as much on, um, you know, general social media. Furthermore, what we might start, start to see, and we certainly see this in Slack, is that bots can be very useful as a presence inside of group channels or conversations. So for example, if I have a personal bot and that bot has a presence in my Slack channels, not only can it be watching and observing things that I'm gonna find interesting or relevant based on let's say projects that I'm personally working on, but if someone needs information from me, for example, about a file that I'm working on, my bot should know the status of that and be able to, presuming that you know you have the right permissions, relay that, that information to my teammates when they're looking for that stuff. Right? Like, right. There's no reason why I should be in the business of constantly routing information about stuff that the computer would know better than me. And yet I spend so much time or so much of my you know, compute power, so to speak, my, my brain matter compute power, thinking about answering those questions like, oh, where did I leave that file? Or like, what's the answer to that? Or what's that person's phone number? You know? Yeah. And what about like bots as in like AI in general as like decision support? There's a lot ah, of that totally. too. Yeah, so for sure. Like, I mean, a good a good example of this. Um, there's a few apps that have come out. In fact, um, one a new version came out just yesterday for the Hemingway editor, and what it does is it's it sort of like allows you to like you know write whatever you're writing, and then it'll give you suggestions on how to improve what you've written. Well, whether it's decision support or whether it's authoring and create creativity support, um, you can imagine that there's those types of applications that are actually giving you hints as you're, you know, whether it's developing your skills or whether it's actually producing your work. Or for example, if you want to do a fact check, I mean, a, a perfect use case of this would be like, you know, to select some statement or argument that you're making and have a bot go off and actually like do the fact checking and say, well, that's not exactly right or whatever. 
Chris, uh, you and I were both at Slush in Helsinki. Did you happen to see the, I can't remember the name of the product, but it was a product that was in the uh, HR space that, it, that the goal was to help um, hiring managers, let's say technical hiring managers or design managers or just HR journalists and for that matter, like be able to write like really well-written responses back to high volume uh, applicants. Wow. And I got a, I got a demo of it. I don't know exact, I mean, the, the, the mechanics of the way it works way over my head, but they demoed it for me on a, on a Skype call. They st- basically start out by saying, hello, Adam, we're sorry, but the position is filled. And then it's writing like sentences uh, yeah. above that. And it, and it's, well, there's a few reasons like one to make sure that like not all the applicants are getting like canned responses and, and to try to be genuine, but also to try to, you know, no one's going to sit there and write like, 400 you know unique emails maybe they do i don't know those those things are uh are pretty interesting to me i, I haven't seen i saw the announcement of, of hemingway i haven't looked at that and i don't I know about you guys <laughs> but i think the i don't know if it's I, I don't know how i feel about it yet but i uh i probably the hardest thing for me is is the decision making power i mean the decision uh and the energy it takes to book meetings you know so like i'm trying like just just in one week this week i'm trying to book a meeting with someone and in Finland and a meeting with someone in Tokyo and they're sending times and you're like that, that 4 PM that day is like 2 AM, you know? And, um, I've tried a lot of these, uh, assistants, if you will, like, uh, these like AI and Clara. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's, there's a new one that, w- that that's, uh, from France that I liked at first until I realized from their customer support that they were still writing a lot of it manually. So like, I don't know if it's like, it's not really a bot and like, I don't know, like, I don't know what this really is. That's the state of the art, man. I mean, like, although like Clara Labs and X.AI are, you know, moving in directions where it's all automated and where the back and forth in the email is done by, you know, uh, a, a quasi intelligence, a lot of it still falls back to humans and humans still have to sort of fill in the blanks when things get very complex. Like it's sort of ironic because it's a very relatively straightforward data task, except once you start getting into the space of personal preferences. So it's like, oh, mm-hmm. well, you know, or this person's in this time zone or, oh, this person has this schedule or this person's traveling in this way or yada, yada, yada. And it's amazing, right? Because everything I just described with this personal bot stuff sounds, at least to me, you know, fairly tractable. You know, I can sort of imagine going to like a Disney world and having this experience. Um, but in terms of what you're talking about, um, if we can't even figure out how to do the scheduling stuff, right, with these these sort of AI systems, then there's a long way to go before we can actually apply this stuff more generally. Now, that said, I mean, to switch topics a little bit, but I, I want to say, yes, like in that specific context that you're talking about, um, these assistants are going to be super valuable, super relevant, take away a lot of the logistical crap that, again, is sort of wasting our brain cycles when we could be using it for more creative or more interesting types of endeavors, making sort of like the the latitudinal leaps that humans are uniquely suited for, whereas computers have not proven to be super creative yet. Um, I think the, the place where this is going to be the most interesting and the most profound, um, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, is, is in self-driving and automated cars, right? Because you have to have kind of like that Knight Rider experience where you get in it and you talk to an automated system once presuming these are legal and once people are no longer kind of um, in, a, in a supervisory role, um, you will be having this conversation with some intelligent agent that's about helping you get to the place that you want to go in the world or 
beyond that, I mean, why do we need to know addresses, right? You probably get into a car having an idea for like the experience that you're going for, whether you're going to eat food or whether you're going to go buy something or whether you're meeting a yep. person, all of that, you know, the sort of destination is somewhat arbitrary. You know, it's not a hundred percent arbitrary, but you want to go to the movies. Great car. Tell me which theater I should go to, which has the best deal. And it's playing something that I haven't seen yet. Why doesn't the car not know that? Right. So I think it's super interesting to think about that real world kind of um, application of this technology and where it's, I mean, you already saw at CES, Alexa is starting to roll out in a lot of contexts, including in cars. That's going to be one of the the, the big new areas um, for a lot of design and a lot of service um, integrations. Um, and so from a design perspective, if you're like a, a young designer thinking about where to go next, I think the, the conversational space is super ripe um, for, for there to be new breakout successes and new patterns um, that we've never seen before. How would you maybe advise someone that's um, that doesn't have the luxury of, say, being in like a mecca hub like New York City or San Francisco to get and you know to acquire those skills or get into the space and sort of uh, get going along the path of the future? I mean, I, I would also add that um, if we're talking about the future, um, we're we're seeing that like, and I'll say this to the designers out there listening: fewer people are hiring us to make products. And more people are hiring us to design the future. Hmm. Um, hmm. Not necessarily the pixels that get, you know, implemented and shipped in the app store, but, you know, help, you know, helping people like with strategy. So I'm, I'm sort of seeing like, it's a, it's a big thing right now, right? And like to, to have to know service design, product design, web design, mobile design, you know, interaction design, visual design. And it's kind of, do you tell, tell me if you believe this, do you, do you see that we're, sort of entering a we're sort of exiting a phase of, of general of generalist generalist design skills being needed to an era of uh, back to specialization uh wow because i feel like what you just asked was actually the inversion of that conclusion um i i think it's it's yes and um i i wrote a post um maybe in 2015 actually um about this idea of like the full stack employee and you know i guess historically that's been called like a t-shaped employee or something like that but the idea mm -hmm. uh, essentially is that to really understand or to be um useful and this is sort of i was kind of writing about myself it's like i spend so much time looking at so many things trying to synthesize so much information um because I'll end up in a conversation with like a PM that's like talking about analytics or stats or data. And then I'll have another conversation with a UX researcher. And then I'll have another conversation with a backend engineer. And then another conversation with a system architect or then like an exec. And you've got to be able to kind of speak their language, right? So that's sort of like a language acquisition and concept acquisition. But then you also have to be able to comment on and, and have inferences about whether the thing that they're saying is like stupid or not. Um, and so I guess like, to me, that, that says a couple things. Like one, um, one of the most important skills, well, there's probably two very important skills moving into the future. I think the first is curiosity and cultivating the curiosity across all sorts of different areas is really important. And in fact, there's a really good book um, that Joey Ito just produced uh, with Jeff Howe um, called Whiplash. And it's about how the MIT Media Lab works. And it's got like 10 rules for the future. And it's, it's, I think it's really good. It's, it really tracks to a lot of experiences that I've had. Um, and that's, I think, going to be critical in terms of where we're going. Um, and I think the other thing is that there are going to be people who are going to have to be able to go super deep with uh, certain technologies or certain ideas. Like there is yeah. just so much depth now. And I'm one of those people that sort of skims a lot of stuff, but doesn't like, you know, can't 
code my way out of a you know shoebox at this point. Um, but you have to be able to rely on those people who actually understand this stuff deeply. And so the question mm -hmm. is, how do you partner with them and how do you build a good relationship with them? And how do you have patience um, when they're sharing their expertise and their, their knowledge and their wisdom um, when you might be sort of only focused on like the big picture? Um, yeah. And then the other, the other th the point that you were making before where um, you're getting less client work coming to you to ask you to, let's say, produce an app. Like, I think we are shifting. Um, we're shifting into a world where the primary way that we compute is no longer going to be like confined to to glass you know we're mm -hmm. going to be having voice based interactions and that's going to be the entirety of the experience someone buys an alexa for like their grandmother and that's how the grandmother accesses a bunch of services you know yeah my mom or, is or, blind and and mm -hmm. alexa is the only way that my mom experiences the internet right right well i mean she can well, do web searches and stuff like that but she consumes most content from Alexa. Yeah, and a lot of it, it's just like a continuation of all the different interaction points. Yeah, it's it was pretty game-changing for her, I mean, to say the least. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so so having that, like, I guess I guess what that sort of also implies is like we, we as designers have to be very careful about, you know, doing the thing where you, uh, you've got a hammer and so you're just sort of like seeking nails in the world. Like, your job as a designer is to solve the problem um, mm -hmm. however that may manifest and to m take advantage of the right tools, channels, and technologies that are being built. Um, and we're, we're in this, this shift, I think, towards simpler technologies, um, at least in terms of the user experience or, or perhaps the way that they encounter them, even though the depth of those technologies are, are way deeper than they've been before. And so a lot of that complexity that used to exist on the user interface side, i.e. in drop-down menus and like stuff like that on the web, is now moving into more kind of... Um, what I, what I consider to be kind of negotiated interfaces, where, for example, I talk to a bot and I kind of tell it roughly what I think I want because I don't have the right language. That bot then mm -hmm. corrects me and says, oh, do you mean this? And then we can right. actually go forward, as opposed to having me go down a menu tree and putting all the complexity on me, right? Yeah, yeah, I see that too. You know, I mean, um, you know, back in the day, I think even though it wasn't as complex, it, being a designer meant like hacking things together and making it work and playing with like gra you know graphical assets and audio and animation and and in a, in a world where it's it's not just a you know a flat interface. I mean, in designing for when things go wrong and and in reinvigorating our, our like you said curiosity and other mediums. Like writing is fucking important. You mm -hmm. know, like uh, mm -hmm. being able to write and and talk is important. These these are all design and um, yeah, I, th I think it's interesting. I mean, uh, it would probably be overwhelming for a young person to, i mean maybe it's not but i can imagine it being pretty overwhelming like you know does it you know am i supposed to know everything like where do i focus and uh, it's de it's definitely made an impact i think on how natalie and i think have thought about hiring people because as we've seen the move the, from a lot of production to a lot of ideation and and um in just general design work you know our our company has evolved from a mobile design company to a product design company to a digital agency I mean, a lot of the the stuff that we're doing now isn't even digital. It might be an analog. I mean, it's it's really just like you said. I think you said this earlier. Design is really just uh, solving a problem with intent. Um, yeah, like it's not just about like the graphical thing. It's all the interaction points across the whole spectrum. So yeah. some of it is like the strategy or just thinking about how you want all that to like work together. So uh, I'm I'm curious, and you have a very uh, interesting background. Do you do you identify as a technologist or as a designer or as both? I mean, how like how, how do you summarize who Chris yeah. Messina is? <laughs> well, um, uh, it's one of those like sort of, um, what is it? 
the, the master of none thing. Anyways, that's what I probably most identify with. But um, no, like I, I think um, I definitely think of myself as a as a designer. Um, I feel like I'm a, I'm a product guy because like I love product. I love thinking about products that solve people's problems, and I love um, seeing the various ways that people actually approach. Um, asking questions, you know, of the world and then proposing solutions. I mean, this is why I'm such an avid product hunt person, you know, is because these are, these are deeper than hypotheses. These are things that people have actually brought to market and yep. believe is the right solution to any number of problems. And, you know, I, I, I tend to see a lot of patterns and I tend to see sort of like stuff that reappears over and over again. And that's really, really useful for, for my process to kind of get a sense for where things are going and what's working and what's not. And what are the same ideas that you see over and over again? And it's like, why doesn't it work? And it's like, well, there's a fundamental disconnect between perhaps the inspiration or the insight that that product designer had with a set of behaviors uh, that exist in the world that you can tap into. In other words, you know, every now and then I see these apps that are all about kind of planning your night out or like finding things to do. That's mm-hmm. like the perennial one that's been trying to be solved for like the last decade. And they rarely seem to take off or catch on because of the social density that you need to make something like that work, as well as the concentration of people that need to be using it on a regular basis. Right. So, so that's, I think one of the, one of the challenges there. So anyways, I guess the way that I think of myself is as a designer, product person, communicator, uh, certainly a technologist, but I was trained in design. So, you know, I kind of go, I kind of fall back to that. Yeah. So what's next for you? You just left Uber. How long yeah. has it been? Uh, I think it's a week today. Oh man, no, maybe two two weeks today. Yeah. Uh, so what what is next? I mean, um, you advise startups. You do, you have your hands in a lot of places. Like, what do you? Yeah. What do you, what do you think is next for you? Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I've been very fortunate throughout like my career, um, and so I feel um, you know hashtag blessed uh, in a lot of ways. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. Um, yeah. And uh, as a result of kind of having these opportunities come my way, I've been less, I think, choosy or less intentional about saying, you know, this is actually what I am good at. And these are the things that I'm uh, perhaps still have room to grow into. And so I want to be, I think, a lot more thoughtful um, to be like, actually, this is the best use of me and my talents and my super talents um, relative to all the other things that I could do. So I haven't had any shortage of inbound interest, thankfully, um, since I left Uber, but um, I also know that there's probably a very specific kind of role out there, either that I create or that I work with someone else to figure out um, that allows me to do what I do best. You know, it's funny, you know, we, we started out talking about Mike Buzzard and he'll appreciate us talking about him since he's something of a private person. Um, but, you know, he got to Google and he was kind of an odd shaped person. And I find that I tend to be an odd shaped person at places that I go. But he carved out a role for himself in recruiting and hiring and figuring out how to bring in designers that I feel like is like the the perfect sweet spot for him. Um, and I see the work that he's done and the transition that he's sort of made at Google and um, and it's powerful. So in some ways, I guess, you know, maybe a parting thought for for the designers listening you know, start out fairly broad and agnostic about the kind of stuff that you get involved with. Like, solve a lot of problems, get a lot of experiences. Um, the other thing that I that I forgot to mention before, I, there was two things that I was going to say. One was curiosity. The other thing is about finding focus. You know, being able to turn everything off, uh, and that's going to get increasingly hard because we've growth hacked the shit out of all these products, and so they're all vying for your attention. Um, but figure out how to focus for some period of, of time during the weekend days. Um, and then over time, I think become more opinionated about knowing yourself, knowing what your capabilities are, and 
seek out those roles that are really going to give you that opportunity to both stretch and grow yourself as well as be supported. Um, I think I didn't do that as much as, as perhaps looking back now I would have liked to have done. And um, now I'm in a position where I'm starting to like really want to, to find that thing that, that works really well for me. I, I can relate to that. Um, I had to, I had to figure that out a lot, you know, uh, we went, you know, the growing company and hiring people and stuff like that. It took me a while to figure it out, but I, I mean, I think like you, I think I've finally figured out like at least what my, sweet spot. I, I, I understand my sweet spot and I also understand my shape and, and, um, That's good. my limitations. And, uh, well, Chris, uh, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to, to talk with us. Um, it's a pleasure to talk with you. I, we've run into each other a couple of times now and we even hung out together, I but I think this is the most we've talked. And so it we got to change, we got to change that. Uh, we got to hang out, yeah. um, sometime. Yeah. Um, yeah, come to Austin. <laughs> well, are you gonna are you gonna be coming this way in March this year uh, to South by? Yeah, I will be at South by. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, maybe you can hop by the yeah uh, our party or the dribble party or something, and maybe we can uh, get Dude, a beer. Send me invites, man. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. So, um, how can people find you on the interwebs? Sure. So. Um, you know, I've got chrismasina.me, I've got um, chrismasina on Twitter, and you can talk to my bot at m.me slash masinabot, M-E-S-S-I-N-A-B-O-T. Awesome. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for tuning in to the Hustlecast. We'll talk to you later. Hustle is made by FunSize, a digital design agency that works with inspiring product teams around the world. Learn more about us at funsize.co. This season of Hustle is brought to you by Design Inc., the best place to find creative talent and receive free proposals for your project. Go to designinc.com slash hustle and get started today. If you're a designer and you'd like to join, you can apply at designinc.com slash apply. Also, thanks to Graveyard Teeth for the music and Black River Audio for mixing the show. 